Jakarta, home to over 30 million people. Jakarta is a large and dense city that is the capital of the fourth most populous country in the world, Indonesia, home to over 250 million people. After traveling for a month through the country, I saw firsthand its size and eclecticism. From Papua in the east, where indigenous tribes believe they are the only people in the world until the 1970s, to Sumatra's tropical rainforests and volcanoes in the west, the country's people are as diverse as its topography. So where does this leave startups? It's just tremendous fundamentals in terms of demographics, uh, as fourth most populous country in the world, uh, you know, growth curve, stable political environment, uh, opportunities for internet disruption. That's Adrian Lee, founding and managing partner at Convergence Ventures. You're listening to Startup Journeys, a podcast that interviews startup investors around the globe to understand local markets, technology, innovation, and businesses. I'm Jesse Phillips, and in today's episode, I talk with Adrian about what it takes to invest in Indonesia. We discuss adapting business models from more mature markets, Indonesia's growing population of smartphone users, and what this means for investing in mobile, vertical versus horizontal plays, convergences for verticals of focus, and what foreigners should know about investing in the region. Adrian grew up in the UK, has an MBA from Stanford, and is an accomplished entrepreneur himself. We built a online English training uh, company based in China. We were the first to apply a virtual call center uh, technology and platform, linking up hundreds of work-at-home teachers across the US to deliver live on-demand English training to students in China. Uh, that was back in 2006 when we started. Uh, we had some venture money, uh, angel funding from Ch- uh, Silicon Valley, and then later venture funding from China. Uh, we built it to be the largest player of its time uh, in uh, you know, by 2009. Uh, bearing in mind back then China wasn't what it is today. Uh, you know, people didn't all have smartphones. Internet connectivity wasn't where it was today. Uh, but you know, the company did well and was uh, acquired by a U.S. business in 2010. I uh, moved on later to uh, start another company, um, in fact, uh, a couple of companies, uh, working with uh, Oliver Samuel of Rocket Internet, one in China, which was a marketplace for accommodation, later an e-commerce business uh, in Indonesia. Following his startup success, he decided to move to Indonesia. I really wanted to find a way to apply those uh, six plus years of experience in China to markets which had yet to hit the critical development curve um, and you know, I suppose watershed moment in internet penetration. And Southeast Asia seemed to be the most promising place. And with the learnings from more mature markets, Convergence has a thesis for Indonesia. The opportunity to start a venture firm, basically with the thesis of taking the benefit of hindsight um, in more mature markets like China and India and to some extent the US, uh, learning from what are successful models of internet disruption in those markets and using those theses to find the very best teams to back an early stage uh, to uh, build you know, tremendous businesses for Indonesia. And part of that thesis therefore allows us to take less innovation and business risk um, and you know, bet on the teams in building you know, products and services that are proven to be valuable and 
needed by consumers mm-hmm. and businesses from around the world, but just not have not been done well in Indonesia yet. So that was a powerful thesis, and it's one that managed to bring on board you know a couple of low, large traditional media companies in Indonesia as uh, some of our anchor investors. But you know now uh, with the successful closing of uh, our oversubscribed thirty million dollar fund, uh, investors hailing from China to Silicon Valley, India, Singapore, and obviously Indonesia as well. Well, well, congrats on the new fund. That's that's exciting. Um, And I'd love to talk more about that thesis and applying business models that have worked in more mature markets. When you take a business model from another market and try to apply it here, I'm sure there's some things that work really well, and then I'm sure there's other things um, that you need to adjust or adapt. Um, What are some of those things that you need to adapt? And and maybe there's some surprises that were kind of off your radar that came up. Sure. So when I first came to Indonesia, you know, one of the you know one of the companies I was involved with as a co-founder was a company called Craved, and you know I built this uh, I started this business with a couple of other very talented entrepreneurs, um, one of whom uh, Sean, uh, you know, one of whom Stephen Kim is now the CEO uh, for the business, and you know this uh, when we were discussing what types of opportunities we wanted to pursue, you know beyond things that we're passionate about, you know including food. Craved as a, as a food platform. You know, we had looked across markets to see what were proven business models that we felt were lacking uh, in this particular market. And you know, what we, one of the things we saw was that in almost every market there was a food play, but all working in slightly different ways. There could be open table in the US where you know, it primarily does reservations. Um, Tabalog in Japan, which mm-hmm. primarily does reviews similar to Yelp. Dianping Neituan in China, which does a lot of O2O coupons, uh, couponing, as well as reviews. Uh, there are lots of different models which have become billion-dollar businesses within the food space, and we felt that there just was not an opportunity. There was not a, a successful, uh, dominant business in the space in Indonesia. And yet, food is something which people look uh, for every single day. So we started Craved, uh, you know, initially taking a model of uh, discounted reservations uh, into restaurants in Indonesia. Um, after an uh, initial period where we got some traction, we found that you know, this wasn't really growing as we expected. And you know, we, you, we learned further that you know, reservations wasn't a habit in, mm-hmm. in this country. Uh, in fact, many restaurants also it wasn't a necessity because many restaurants you can walk in. So clearly the model had to pivot model had to adjust to what was uh, needed by the audience here and uh, you know a lot of credit to Stephen you know for moving that business model I by that time already left uh, craved uh, to start this venture fund uh, but he moved the model to be a more content driven model uh, that helped address what was the primary issue for consumers in this market which is at the start of their uh, discovery uh, phase of what restaurants to go to, Crave was able to curate and bring together lists of restaurants, um, you know, categorized by taste, by cuisine, by location, and so on, and help people find the types of places that they wanted to go to eat. And then couple that with a comprehensive, high quality directory mm-hmm. so they could find all the information about the place and enable crowdsourced reviews and ratings of those restaurants. And that's where Crave really took off. So 
it wasn't, uh, you know, it started off as let's take a model that worked elsewhere and apply it here. Mm -hmm. um, it had to change, it had to localize. So you know, it was able to hit a spot where consumers found it highly valuable, but it needed localization and adjustment so that it could work for this market. And, and what's the revenue model? Uh, are you selling media uh, or promoted uh, content? Uh, primarily right now it is a media-based model. Uh, it uh, receives uh, advertising and uh, 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 both from brands but also in, uh, from restaurants. Uh, increasingly it's also building revenue streams through selling much-needed marketing tools through to restaurants that want greater exposure to consumers and diners in Indonesia. And so, um, going back to when you began the fund uh, in November 2014, right? Um, it's a 25 million dollar fund, uh, and part of that thesis, which I which I read, was that there was a gap in startup funding uh, for Indonesian companies uh, and startups. So it's been two years now. Um, would love to hear what has changed, what remains the same, and where that gap now stands. So if we wind the clock back to four, five years ago in Indonesia, uh, venture capital was, as a concept, as a source of funding for internet companies was virtually unknown. Uh, there wasn't a lot of attention uh, in this market, uh, both locally or even internationally or regionally. So you know, at that stage there was, I wouldn't even call it a gap, there was just a void mm -hmm. of any sort of financing. You know, when we started uh, Convergence Ventures two years ago, there were uh, funds that already started to be operational in the Indonesian market, but many of them weren't uh, locally based. Uh, we had the most early investors in the Indonesian market were Japanese investors, mostly what we call corporate venture capital. So GRI, Cyber Agent, uh, some of the examples of uh, CVCs which started to invest uh, in this market. When we launched Convergence Ventures in uh, 2000, end of 2012, uh, focused on early stage, uh, we, one of the, we one of the earliest, uh, one of the first, uh, I'd say, independent uh, venture firms uh, that were focused on Indonesia to back uh, mostly locally based entrepreneurs in building companies for this market. Uh, at the time when we launched, uh, we announced that we were targeting a $25 million fund and you know, we had raised uh, some portion of that but not fully closed the fund. And what we decided to do was take uh, the commitments that we had uh, raised and start investing because we were beginning to see a lot of uh, interesting companies that we wanted to back as well. So you know, over the course of about uh, one and a half years, uh, we backed uh, 17 companies early stage. Uh, many of them have gone on to become already leaders in their respective spaces. Uh, eight of our companies have really follow-on financing uh, since we've uh, invested behind them. And you know that helped us in doing our final close of the fund, uh, surpassing our $25 million target and now getting to over $30 million mm. in total commitments uh, with investors from uh, Indonesia but also around the world. Mm -hmm. And was that topped off by the Baidu investment which happened about a year ago? So we've got to know Baidu uh, Indonesia quite well. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we like to work with partners who are ecosystem builders, who can help develop the entire industry. Uh, this, as an early stage market, 
we believe is more about entrepreneurs and investors and even strategic partners working together to grow the ecosystem mm -hmm. uh, versus to directly compete with each other and shrink the ecosystem. So Baidu has been a great partner for us. Um, we um, have not you know, disclosed you know, uh, what form of investment uh, that we're working with them on, but you know, broadly speaking, you know, the partnership uh, enables us to fast track interesting portfolio companies and investments to Baidu for direct investment. Uh, it also involves us, uh, involved us working with them on accelerator program that we did earlier this summer as well. Uh, going forward, um, it also uh, opens up uh, certain resources uh, that Baidu has in Indonesia, but also some engineering talent from China um, on a case-by-case -case basis uh, to help uh, startup companies in Indonesia directly um, you know, to access know-how uh, know and experience that they might otherwise not have access to. Mm -hmm. So it's a broad partnership that we have uh, with them. Uh, but uh, we do have you know, a number of institutional investors as well from, uh, you know, from the region uh, and also from China uh, that uh, have deep networks and uh, experience that overall complements what we have to offer to our portfolio today. Mm -hmm. And is there any mandate to uh, expand your portfolio companies outside of Indonesia to China or other countries? Uh, or is there more of a focus on Indonesia or maybe it's both? We're a small fund and also quite a small team. And we believe the greatest impact that we can have both as uh, investors and also to our portfolio companies is by focusing on what we believe is the greatest opportunity and that's in Indonesia. Mm -hmm. So you know, we, one of the primary filters we have are that companies that we invest into have operations in Indonesia. So they don't have to be based in Indonesia. In fact, four of our company, four or five of the businesses we invested in to are not based in Indonesia, but they have team and operations here. But we believe this way, uh, you know, there are a number of benefits. Uh, firstly, because we are so focused on building out our sourcing and reputation and platform in Indonesia, we will have the broadest and most diverse funnel to source all the startups that exist over here. And this way, by seeing everything, we have the pick of the very best that come out from Indonesia. So you know, that's a way that we can scalably do that. If we had to travel to five or six different cities across Southeast Asia and spend a couple of days or three days in each city every month, we don't believe we'd be able to look, uh, go into as much depth and breadth for the startups that we want to invest into. On the flip side, on the other side, we are also very passionate about working with and supporting our entrepreneurs. And so we've invested into building a platform of support um, with our team in Indonesia, which includes a PR support team, includes a recruitment team. And this is only possible uh, to scale up if we're focused on one location, mm -hmm. that's Indonesia. So this year already, our recruitment team has placed over 15 C or manager level talent into our portfolio. And having been entrepreneurs ourselves and knowing that talent is typically the biggest bottleneck and challenge that entrepreneurs face in building a business, we felt that by providing this as a service 
to our portfolio. It's free. We don't charge anything for it. It's uh, part of the package of us investing into the uh, into the into the companies. Uh, know that this is something that is of value and can have a good impact to the entrepreneurs that we're backing. Um, recently read a Bloomberg report that 34% of Indonesians now have smartphones. Um, and just contrasting that with 68% of, of the U.S. population. Um, and soon that number in Indonesia is going to rise to 53% in 2020. Uh, so as you mentioned earlier, Indonesia, it's the fourth largest population, 250 plus million people. Mm. So the opportunity is massive. Mm. Um, and there's, there's clearly huge opportunities in mobile. Uh, what are some of the potential mobile uh, risk factors you consider and some common reasons why mobile startups fail? So I think mobile in of itself uh, isn't an opportunity. Mobile is an interface and a format by which a business might be delivering their product or service. Indonesia, the opportunity you know, in mobile is because many consumers will be mobile native. They won't have known the internet through any other interface or will know it through a mm -hmm. smartphone. They won't have had a laptop or a computer or anything uh, prior. And mobile is also the opportunity to tap into those uh, consumers because wireless is the only way we can accelerate penetration in Indonesia because the fixed line penetration is so low. <clears throat> So with that in mind, uh, when we you know when we think of mobile as a format, right, mm -hmm. versus as a you know, as a business in of itself, right, we're then looking at what are, what is the right timing for different verticals um, and disruption to happen within those different verticals and different industries, and if we learn from the growth path of more mature markets like China and India. But we'll understand that you know, when you build a business, uh, you don't want to be too late, but neither do you want to be too early mm -hmm. right, when there's no market for your actual product. So what we've seen in the past so far, four years so far, that there's been a lot of investment and now there's been you know, maturity and consolidation in a lot of horizontal e-commerce platforms. Um, the likes of Tokopedia as marketplaces, the likes you know, of uh, Lazada as a um, you know, e-commerce uh, business as well. And you know, these are businesses which have grown tremendously and still have a long way to grow, uh, but have grown tremendously over the last uh, three, four years, but have reached a competitive maturity where you know, it's unlikely that we will find a lot of value or um, you know, potential mm -hmm. in backing an early stage player trying to do those things right now. Yes because you know, it's, it's a more consolidated market. Mm -hmm. But in that, we see that now, because there is more of a critical mass of people and consumers who are more educated about buying online, there are opportunities in different verticals. Broadly speaking, we see opportunities in four key verticals. Mm -hmm. uh, we separate them as one, digital media disruption. Media consumption is huge in Indonesia. And if you look at report by Mary Mika a couple of years ago, you'll see that kind of media consumption in Indonesia is per cap on a per capita basis mm -hmm. on, um, is one of the highest in the world. 
I did see that, and that was... Yeah, you that can was probably blame it on the terrible traffic. <laughs> Everyone has the face commuting Maybe. here. Actually, uh, I don't else. Even, even was seeing uh, <laughs> people on scooters looking at their smartphones, right. which not a lot of scooters in, in D.C. where I'm from. So No, no, that's yeah. right. So we do believe that there are interesting models of uh, media disruption, which uh, can happen here. And so uh, that's one area we think there's uh, a lot of potential. In commerce now, we think there are a lot of interesting areas for large niches, uh, vertical commerce. Uh, for example, uh, certain types of fashion, uh, certain uh, areas like uh, home furnishing. Mm -hmm. um, these are areas where they are products and services which are demanded by, needed by consumers, generally speaking, uh, can be focused to the mass affluent. Um, and as businesses tend to have a higher margin profile than you know, kind of the early uh, e-commerce movers like electronics. Mm -hmm. So those can also be interesting businesses. Another area which we tend to like um, are what we call search directories and aggregators. You know, there are mm -hmm. so many businesses, uh, SMEs and products and services in Indonesia, uh, and there are no good platforms for connecting uh, the consumers and the suppliers of those uh, businesses and services. So uh, by you know, using a mobile focused uh, application that streamlines uh, the search and then ordering or booking of these types, so those are also things that uh, we like very much. And so we've, uh, we're looking at those opportunities. Um, you know, I think a special one that I would pick out um, from here as well is potentially disruptive models within lending in particular. Mm -hmm. uh, we think that uh, you know, the, there, is, you know, there is a huge population who are unable to access um, credit, um, be it uh, as consumers or even as small medium enterprises, and that there can be innovative solutions both in terms of the funding of those, uh, of those, uh, uh, of those um, opportunities in terms of how you access that funding, but also how you credit rate and yes. risk, risk assess some of these, um, uh, the consumers and those businesses. So that's an area we're also quite interested in. Yes. With new forms of credit rating, what's, what's the existing form that that's disrupt, disrupting? Well, there is no, uh, unlike the US, there isn't a kind of general source of uh, credit rating information uh, from, for, for people, for mm -hmm. consumers here. And mostly banks will base it off, if you're doing consumer lending, base it off a, you know, the, the banking history that a customer has uh, with a bank. Mm -hmm. uh, given that banking penetration itself is barely over a third of the population, you can see therein lies a problem. Wow. But if we look at China, there are, you know, given that we are so data connected these days and a lot of people are accessing you know, the internet through a mobile phone, the amount of data that a person would have on a phone uh, that could probably correlate to a reasonable credit score um, you know, is, you know, is, is, is quite high, you know, be it you know, their phone bills, uh, be it their contact database or uh, you know, the applications and all the data that, uh, that is contained there through social profiles. So I think there are lots of innovative ways that could be used to provide a more general credit rating uh, mm. for, for, for people in Indonesia um, and open up this ability to lend to very many more people. Uh, for the companies that we've seen so far, you know, there is a challenge in that, which is you know, some of this is not basic technology. It requires a certain level and sophistication of engineering to be able to build this type of um, 
build this type of business. Mm-hmm. Um, but some of the business that we've seen so far continue to use uh, psychometric and uh, questionnaire-based profiling to, you know, to assess the credit risk of a consumer. Yeah. Let's shift on to the, uh, the other side of the spectrum when it comes to mm-hmm. investing, and that's exits. Yeah. Uh, when you think about exits, what is the split between initial public offerings on the Indonesian uh, exchange uh, and then exits to, to corporates, which uh, now it, there's more and more mm. uh, Asian corporate buyers. Mm. So it's safe to say there are no listed Indonesian tech companies uh, yeah. on the board at present. But you know, if we look at more mature markets uh, you know, uh, and compare the Jakarta Stock Exchange to that of Hong Kong's or Seoul's or Japan's, and look at similar, more traditional businesses, say for example in, uh, in media um, and in telecoms. You know, Indonesia, from a population standpoint, has the ability to produce billion dollar market cap companies in this mm. space. Right? And so by that rationale, we'd assume that 10 years in the future, potentially there are internet companies because these other markets, Hong Kong, Singapore, so there are internet companies that are worth billions of dollars. And then some stage there will be local Indonesian companies that are internet based with billion dollars and are listed. Um, you know, how long that will take right now, quite frankly, is anyone's guess. Right? Mm. But given that we already have five reputedly uh, unicorns in Indonesia, you know, we'd probably think that it's going to happen within you know, the next five to six years, you know, given the investors that have got behind these, these companies. That said, there is also alternatives which the government is working on and we are partially involved, which includes the introduction of a secondary board which would be focused on technology plays. And this would have lower requirements for uh, listing um, and not necessarily be open to retail investors, but open to local institutional investors who want to get upside mm-hmm. in um, you know, technology-based plays. These are they would have revenue. They might not be profitable yet, but would have a clear path to profitability, and at the same time provide a channel for exit for earlier stage investors as well. Mm-hmm. So from the public route, I think that's that's you know that's what we see. Shorter term, perhaps a secondary board. Longer term, perhaps main board. Mm-hmm. Um, having said that, in the past in Indonesia local conglomerates have shown themselves to be acquisitive of internet-related assets. The largest news portal was acquired, Detik.com. The largest messaging board, Kaskus, was also acquired. And these are companies which are worth, you know, that the acquiring companies are worth billions of dollars and listed. So local acquisitions, I think, uh, are a viable option for companies that become leaders in their space, but also overseas acquisitions. And we're seeing increasing interest in Indonesia, from Chinese companies looking for emerging market op- emerging markets mm-hmm. they can exposure to, and you know, learning from the experience of uh, you know how you need strong local teams in order to run and build businesses for the long term, uh, they will likely look for those types of assets when expanding to Indonesia versus simply building for themselves. Mm-hmm. So, if a Western-based investor um, sees Indonesia and, and thinks uh, it's a fantastic opportunity. 
what should they know which might be off the radar? What are some of the unique qualities here uh, that are different? That's a very, very broad question. So, you can so a Western investor looking to invest in Indonesia. A venture capitalist, venture capitalist that sees the market opportunity and the population. Mm. Um, what, what are maybe the top three things mm. uh, that are unique here? So I think, generally speaking, it is perhaps easier to get carried away with some of the macro picture of mm -hmm. large population, rapidly growing incomes and uh, you know, interesting disruptive companies which you, know, you can understand the business model of. But venture investing in any market is first and foremost a people business, right? Yes. Having to, especially early stage where there's not a huge amount of metrics to go by. And so being able to fly in and expect to get a really mm -hmm. decent investment uh, is a non-starter. You know, that, is, that is extremely risky. Mm -hmm. you know, we meet entrepreneurs at all stages and we even meet people who are aspiring to be entrepreneurs because we don't want to be investing behind an entrepreneur uh, you know, just when they've started a, a, you know, or the, or the business they're ready to fundraise. Ideally, we've built a relationship with an entrepreneur and we've got a history of understanding the progress and growth of that entrepreneur so that we have a really good understanding of the why is this entrepreneur building this business, right? And not be overly thesis driven because, you know, being too overly thesis driven, of course, there's going to be something huge in food here. Of course, there's going to be mm -hmm. some huge e-commerce businesses here. Um, that's the easy part. The harder part is spending the time and kicking the tires and understanding the co-founders and their team and what they, you know, you know what they're really about. So I wouldn't say it's unique uh, to Indonesia, um, but uh, it's uh, an area where you can place additional emphasis and uh, research on because if you're investing in value or investing in frontier technologies, then you, know, you probably have to do an equal if not more research into you know, what are these people, what, yeah. you know, what are the companies building, right? And make a yeah. bet on how this will disrupt an industry in the future. You, you, know, you kind of understand and see uh, the crystal ball for the Indonesian market. And so you can spend more time on the team, is yeah. uh, my thinking. Words of wisdom, well, that, <laughs> that, uh, that makes total sense. Um, so let's finish off here. For someone visiting Jakarta for the first time, what would you suggest they do? What are the, the top things to see here? Jakarta or Indonesia? Jakarta. Jakarta. Oh, okay, Jakarta. So I would say that you know, Indonesia, first off, is, is an enormous country. And east to west, it stretches the distance of the east to west of the US. Yeah. And so there are beautiful, far more beautiful places to go and visit than Jakarta itself, which is just really a business and uh, political capital. But you know, I would say that one of the benefits of being in Jakarta is that you can have a little bit of everything in Indonesia in Jakarta. And uh, you know, being a foodie myself, I think uh, food would be that, you know, would be that uh, mm. little bit that I try and get a taste of. One of the things I didn't realize coming to Indonesia was that cuisine 
uh, Indonesian cuisine is as is almost as diverse as Chinese cuisine is across China. Mm. You know, China has eight kind of major different types of cuisine, and each one tastes very different. Well, Indonesia has very different food depending on where you're in Indonesia, um, from uh, you know, so very there's spicy fried rice, there's fried noodles. You're gonna get fried, fried rice, eggs, nasi goreng, and nasi and, and uh, bakmi and mie goreng. Uh, I think everywhere, but. You, know, you have padan food, uh, which is which uh, is very interesting. You know, when you sit down at a padan restaurant, you get offered twenty dishes, and you take a little oh, bit wow. of each. It's uh, it's great food. I love padan food, except uh, you might end up with food coma after yeah. going for one of those meals. Um, I love spicy food, and so uh, Manadanese um, food is extremely spicy. Manadanese food is some of the most spicy food I've uh, at least ever had. Uh, and then you, know, you also have some really great um, kind of noodles, um, which you know, is a kind of mix between Southeast Asian Chinese and uh, this Indonesian uh, food that you have out here. Uh, all different types of what they call bakmi and uh, bakso, which are meatballs. Yeah. So uh, I would uh, check on Crave for uh, what is their list of Indonesian food to try and go go explore. I, I want to try that all so I'm going on to Crave right after this. That, that sounds fantastic. Uh, thanks a lot Adrian. That was uh, Adrian Lee here at Convergence Ventures. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to episode three of Startup Journeys. As always, I'd love to hear your questions, comments, and suggestions. Email me at startupjourneys at gmail.com and you can follow me on Instagram at jessejourneys and check out my blog at jessejourneys.com. If you like what you heard, give it a review. I'm Jesse Phillips and this is Startup Journeys.